1: We are about to break the surly bonds of gravity and punch the face of God. Left Jab Productions present Edge of Sports Radio, where sports and politics collide. And now your host, Dave Zirin. The Kid.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Boom! Edge of Sports Radio, where sports and politics collide. I'm Dave Zirin. Joined, as always... By a man who seems to dislike European basketball players so much, I may have to rename him <laughs> ISO Dan for being an isolationist in the 1930s historical model. Dan Baker, I, lo- I love Europe, the country, the, the countries there, but the players
1: it doesn't do it for me. Ah,
2: the, the, the data does not back up what you're saying. I'm sorry, sir. We'll get into that in a second. Uh But we also have the coach, Kevin McNutt. How you doing, Coach? My man. Let's Uh, do this thing. I love this. And me, Mark. How you doing, me, Mark? Good. I mean, NBA draft day. I feel like, as a big fan of the NFL draft, I have a little bit. You know, I I have a little bit of joy for this because it's a draft. Well, that's what I'm saying. Is that this is a day that kind of brings us all together because. You love the NFL draft. Yes. Have you, see, have you I seen I believe it? that the NFL draft is injustice personified, we go. a disgusting, we go. disgusting <laughs> racist, objectifying spectacle, the likes of which should have been done away with with the passage of the Emancipation Proclamation I don't, I don't think I disagree in 1863. With no. But the NBA draft is more like prom. You know what I'm saying? (laughs) It's like people dress up in the suits. They're there with the families. You're not standing on on a square while people measure your thighs. It's like you do your workouts. People watch the tape. You get drafted. Mm. And this draft in particular, this draft in particular, I think, is the most interesting draft in years. Why? The deepest in terms of talent and a draft where I think the best player in this draft might be taken number 8 overall. Mm. And we can talk about that after the break. But you know what? I am so excited about the draft. Coach, I know you want to talk about Sean Diddy Combs. I know you want to talk about him trying to hit people with a kettlebell. (laughs) I know that's your thing. But I would rather talk about Dan Baker's xenophobia.
3: (laughs) I do too. Mark Barry's
2: love of the evil NFL draft. But how we've come together on the NBA and, Coach, yes, sir. your inability to judge NBA-caliber Oh,
3: wait, what far superior to yours? <laughs> Not at I, all, and sir. And I can tell you that. i can tell you this Not right now. Not at all. Only two of them are going to pan out before three years.
1: I can tell you well, that. we'll find In, out. Including your those secret Listen
2: pick. to after the break. We're going to hear who Coach thinks will pan out. We'll be-
1: Edge of Sports Radio with Dave Zirin. We'll return after this. Dave Zirin returns on Edge of Sports Radio, where sports and politics collide. Boom, we're
2: back here at Edge of Sports Radio. A new study. It's dude time. A quarter century of excluding women's sports and televised news and highlight show is out. It's out by, by the courtesy of three amazing professors who've done the research compiling a quarter century of data regarding coverage of women's sports. We have one of those professors on the line right now to speak about what she found out. So excited to have her on the show. Her name is Cheryl Cookie. How are you doing, Professor?
0: I'm doing well, Dave. How are you?
2: Thrilled to have you on. I'm pretty stunned by this report. The numbers have barely budged in a quarter of a century. How do we yes. understand that given the explosion of participation of women in sports?
0: One of the things that we did with the study is we looked at the content, right? So we turned on the TV and watched SportsCenter, watched the local news affiliates in Los Angeles and compiled how much time they were spending covering women's sports compared to how much time they were spending covering men's sports. We also looked at the quality of that coverage. And so with that particular kind of analysis, it's hard to get at the why question. Why are are these, these trends persisting over time? particularly with the participation rates uh, exploding like we've seen. And so one of the things that we kind of speculate is that perhaps it has something to do with the makeup of commentators and ancillary anchors and analysts who are um, appearing on these segments and responsible for for creating um, the content, right? And so one of the things that we also look at is the gender makeup of Mm -hmm. those commentators and analysts. And this is probably not very surprising if you watch the local news or if you watch sports center, it's mostly men in terms of uh, the data that we looked at, and so I think that that really speaks to some of that why question. Uh, and I think the most recent uh, scandal controversy with the Sports Illustrated
2: Andy Benoit, uh, yeah,
0: yeah, tweeting about you know women's sports is boring or it's less interesting. Um, and I think when we have journalists, you know regardless of if they're male or female, with that kind of mentality. These trends are going to persist.
2: And he was defended full-throatedly by Colin Cowherd on his radio show. ESPN, not that they're the be-all, end-all of sports coverage, but I thought it was fascinating what you guys found out from ESPN. Only 2% of sports center coverage to women's sports, and of that 2%, 82% basketball. How do they ever expect tastes to change if you don't give the opportunity for an audience to consume the different sports that are out there?
0: Exactly. And that's one of the things that we argue. I think there's this sort of conventional logic that many within the media espouse, uh, as well as just you know, members of the general public, which is that the media are simply uh, reflecting interest. Mm-hmm. Um, they're just giving viewers what they want to see or what they want to hear. Uh, and so, uh, you know, of course, SportsCenter is going to focus on men's sports and in particular the men's big three football, basketball, and baseball, because that's what people want to see. That's what viewers want to, to, to know about. But I think you're rightly pointing out, and this is something we talk about in the study, is that the media actually also plays a very powerful role in terms of building audiences. And they do it very well for men's sports, and they do it horribly for women's sports.
2: Mm. You see, that, that that's, I think, you, that's the other part of the report I wanted to ask you about, because... I I I read the report that when when you guys came out with it I believe it was 5 years ago and you should correct me if I'm wrong I don't I didn't see this in the report 5 years ago definitely saw it this time but I thought it was fascinating the section on tone in terms of how announcers speak about women's sports and the kind of segments they do about women's sports and which of course plays a role in creating tastes for women's sports can you speak a little bit about that
0: yeah, and I think that that's probably something that um, we did um, observe in, in prior iterations of the report, but it's it definitely uh, was really stark uh, in this most recent uh, data set. And I think that has um, something to do with the fact that uh, in the past, 10, 15, 20 years ago, uh, a lot of the segments that were on women's sports or that were featuring women or female athletes really sexualized and trivialized women's sports. And so uh, and now we're seeing in some ways a, a positive shift in that the media are, the, the um, commentators are, are speaking um, with a bit more respect, right? We're, we're not seeing that kind of sexual sexualization. We're not seeing kind of the joking, sexualized humor that we saw in previous iterations. Uh, but now it's kind of, you know, as if The media don't know how to talk about women's sports unless they're framing them as sexual objects or as mothers. So in the stories that are just about sport, they're delivered in a really kind of bland, uh, you know, just the facts. USC met with, you know, St. John's today or whatever. Almost like I think
2: your report said like the vegetables of the meal of sports. Mm
0: Yes, yes. So and then, like okay, we have to eat our vegetables first, so then mom will let us, you know, uh have dessert, right? And the dessert is men's sports. And this is where we can have the the vocal inflections and the excitement and the um the 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 very lively descriptors. Uh and we just didn't see that um and I think the fact that um there's so few stories um of women's sports when they are presented in that way, it does convey the message that you know women's sports aren't interesting, um, I mean, unfortunately.
2: And let me let me ask you you this too, and I know this is more of a, a again a conjecture question, a, an opinion question. But when when I saw the two percent figure uh, for ESPN Sports Center, my mind immediately went to some of my own personal fears when they launched ESPNW. Uh Because it's this idea of like, hey look, we're cultivating women's sports, we have a space for women's sports. Isn't this great? And it's kinda like, will that also serve then to ghettoize women's sports, segregate women's sports, and but then also create this sort of corporate cover for ESPN to say, what do you mean we don't cover women's sports? We have a whole platform dedicated to women's sports. Do you think that's what's playing out, or do you think this is just growing pains as Bristol develops this core of women writers for the purpose of making them more multi platform and spreading the gospel if you will? What do you think's happening
0: yeah i think I think the I see the the ghettoization uh that that a lot of the uh, uh, coverage that we might see of women's sports or even you know men's non revenue sports uh is is uh pushed onto those Niche markets or that those specialized platforms, right? And I think it does um, take some accountability, unfortunately, off of the mainstream uh, news media, sports news media, from having to cover women's sports because, exactly like you said, you know they don't have to talk about women's sports on Sports Center because they have ESPNW. Now, the the key piece here that I think. Um, your, your viewers should know is that ESPNW is not necessarily about women's sports. Right. It's a website for women's sports fans. And so, yeah, they'll cover, you know, the NCAA Women's Tournament. They're, they're covering um, the World Cup. Um, but but uh, they're also covering NFL football. They're, they're covering, mm-hmm. uh, you know, men's basketball the Stanley Cup play, you know, so so it's not just, okay, here's the space now where we're really going to focus on covering women's sports and doing it well and doing it the same way we cover men's, but it is, I think somewhat of a guise uh, that allows them to sort of say like throw up their hands and like, well, you know, we've got this other um, space. The other thing I wanted to say about that particular issue as well is that um, sports center uh, did come back uh, and say that, that uh, in another interview, um, that their broadcast coverage has increased from 1,500 hours of coverage of women's live sports events uh, back in 2010, I think, to now 7,500 hours of uh, live broadcast coverage, which is great. Um, But for me, that actually proves our point even more, which is, okay, so ESPN, you're aware that women's sports are going on. You're actually covering it on your networks. But yet, when we look at your uh, premier mm-hmm. uh, sports news show, the women aren't there. So I, it's not that they can claim that they are not aware of women's sports or there's no women's sports happening. They're happening, and they're happening, you know, right next door, so to speak. But yeah, um, and they're so. making
2: editorial choices not to cover it. We'll put the report out on our Twitter feed. Professor Cookie, congratulations. It's a groundbreaking report. Glad we could discuss it. We will put it out so folks can read it themselves. Thank you, Professor Cookie.
0: Thank you so much for having me on your show.
2: Thrilled, too. That was Professor Cookie from Purdue University. Them's the Boilermakers. we got to go to break. We'll be back right after this.
1: Edge of Sports Radio with Dave Zirin. We'll return after this. Dave Zirin returns on Edge of Sports Radio, where sports and politics collide.
2: Boom, we're back here on Edge of Sports Radio, joined by the Henry Ford of, of Sports Radio, producing what an isolationist, hates the European ball player, his name, Dan Baker, and the coach, Kevin McNutt, my man. me, Mark Barry. NBA draft, my favorite night of the year. Let's go over, Why? first and foremost, I, I think it's fascinating, the whole question, I feel like it speaks to like the great philosophical questions of our times. Do you draft talent, or do you draft need? Let's start there, Coach. If you're, you're GM, drafting
3: neither, you're drafting potential. None of these guys are going to produce for three years.
2: I'm not talking about that. I mean philosophically, if you had to the chance to draft a great point guard when you already have an All-Star point guard, or a serviceable big when you have no bigs, what do you take as an NBA GM? Are you a talent or a need guy? Talent. You're talent. Oh yeah. Always talent over oh, yeah. need. Wow. What about you, Mimar? It's it's got to oh, yeah. be it's got to be talent. I feel like the 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 absolute. If you look back in history, it's just strewn about with tall people that couldn't actually play basketball. Yep. And, it, and you're, you, it's like you pick the players that actually play basketball well rather than the high ceiling and you work out. Maybe you don't hit the highest of the highs, but you hit what actually works. See, people like you are why David Kahn was employed as GM of the Minnesota Timberwolves, taking 67 <laughs> point guards in a row. Johnny saying, Flynn, man. Saying, hey, all we need is talent. You're both wrong. You draft for need, baby. Need, need, need. You draft for the person who fills the spot. Fills the spot. Because I grew up with the pain of having Mark Jackson as a potential icon point guard in New York City, mm-hmm. and then they draft Rod Strickland. And all it caused was confusion and heartache as people split over D's side Rod Strickland, Mark Jackson. It destroyed the locker room, destroyed the culture, destroyed Patrick Oh, oh They Ewing.
3: just picked the wrong guard. Both of them were point guards.
2: Yeah, that's my point, though. Don't draft a point guard if you already have a great point guard. I'm sorry. You don't do it that way.
3: What well, they head well, Jackson already? Yeah. In the draft. Oh, is that right? Yeah. I, don't, I don't recall that.
2: Okay, well, that's why I'm here, to actually recall the history of sports <laughs> so you can make things up. No, that All that right. just
3: a home-cooked trade that broke your heart, obviously. So
2: let, let's, I'm going to go through a little bit of this <laughs> first. All right, just say to me if like, if you think this is good, good or bad. Day. If you think it's good, good we're day. just going to move on. Good day. Good day. Good day. All right, one, Minnesota, Karl-Anthony Towns. You like that, Coach? No problem. You're good with that? Yeah. Is he one of the players you think is going to be good? Yes. So after three mm. years, we're going to be like, that's he, a really good could player. be before
3: three years. Before three years. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All right, he's Mark. Got, he's got game. I, no I, problem I, with that?
2: No, I think it's chalk. Yeah. I think it's chalk, too. I think anytime you have someone that big and young who shoots 80% from the free throw line, mm-hmm. it's just a sign of really cool things mm-hmm. to come. Mm-hmm. I mean, okay. seriously. Right. Like, you look at players like, like really good big men who became good free throw shooters at this point in their life. Like, Carl Malone was a 47% free throw shooter. Tim Duncan was a 55%. They learned. Shaq never learned. This guy's already there. Mm-hmm. And people will tell you, great, great stroke at the line at a young age means you can learn how to shoot from further back, mm-hmm. which is why nobody's tripping about that kid R.J. Hunter coming out who shot 30% from three, the small school kid for Georgia, Georgia State, State yeah. and whose father was the coach who fell off the stool mm-hmm. because people don't care that he shot 30% from three because he was 88% from the line, and people yeah. are like he was a volume great. shooter. He's going to be fine. That line is very important. So I'm calling Anthony Towns. Number two, this is already where it gets interesting. Lakers, Jaleel Okafor. Now I'm asking you, before I ask you this, keep this in mind. Do you take, these are your options. Mm -hmm. Do you take Jaleel Okafor, Mm -hmm. who may be an immediate 2010 guy coming out but can't play defense, just so people know that. Do you take D'Angelo Russell? Who apparently just had an amazing workout with the Lakers, and people are saying he might even be leaning that way? Mm. Or do you trade the pick with Julius Randle, who was their top pick a year ago, who broke his leg immediately, and send it for Boogie Cousins?
3: What do you do? It all all depends on what you're trying to do. Are you trying to win one more for Kobe? Or are you trying to. Well, no, see, don't say it's
2: what you're trying to do. I'm asking you. Your name is Mitch Kupchak. I'm asking you. (laughs) So are you thinking to yourself, "I want one more Kobe run," or are you thinking and, and try to get some of the shine back from the Clippers, or are you thinking to yourself, "I want to rebuild. I cannot be held hostage to a thirty-nine-year-old dude who is drinking deer antler spray by the gallon so he can summon his body
3: for one more season." Yeah. That's, what do you do, man? That's fool's gold to try to. What they win? Fifteen games last year. Yeah, maybe something like that. Is that, yeah, so no, you got to go ahead and take the take the uh, take the talent, and I have and no problem talent? with Okafor. Okafor I is mean, he one of the
2: guys you think is going to be good?
3: You got a championship ring. He can play. He's fifteen. Look, and defense is I, this is sounding crazy. Defense is overrated. I mean, who who can check who in the league anyway? On mm. consistent That's why. That's a
2: very interesting point know? because I hate the Duncan comparisons to Okafor because they have similar post moves, and I hate them because Duncan is. Arguably the best defender at the four of his generation. Who is Tim Duncan? Oh, okay, All right. Go ahead. And I mean, just I mean, sir, you look at Duncan's numbers, his rim protection over the course of his career, it's unbelievable how good a defensive player he is. And it's under very undervalued. And this guy Okafor apparently can't stay in shape and he apparently can't play defense. Where, I didn't
3: hear that. Where's that coming from?
2: I mean, it's, I, I read all the draft stuff, and there's, I mean, even Jay Billis, who thinks he should be he's drafted. A guy. Yeah, Jay Billis is a dookie and thinks that Okafor should be number one right. in over Overtowns. Right. And he has said, like, look, he, I heard him say it this way. I know everybody says behind the scenes that the kid can't stay in shape, and the kid can't play defense, but I just think it was an adjustment because things came so easily to him in high school, and then mm-hmm. he hit a wall mm-hmm. in the tournament, because he did have a pretty crappy Final Four. Yes, you did. So yeah. putting that out there, yeah. mean Mark. You, you get boogie. If you're the man. Lakers. What do you do? You get yeah. boogie. Absolutely. You package together. There is so, there <laughs> is so much cap space. I'm with like you. you. You trade for Cousins. You throw a bunch of money either at Kevin Love mm-hmm. or LaMarcus Aldridge. You build a team and you do it that way. I'm with you. Or you take D'Angelo Russell and get your big through free agency, LaMarcus Could Aldridge, be. Kevin Love. Because D'Angelo Russell might be very special. And then you get Julius Randle. But I'll say you this, Coach. Uh-huh. The boogie issue is that dude's only twenty four? So you still are getting for the future.
3: You see what I'm saying? Yeah, you, it's you, 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 you wait for him to grow up, man. He's yeah, that's the from, thing. From Kentucky you're you're to running
2: a, the risk uh, of Bynum 2.0, but right. the difference is it, no it, one has ever. Is. But no one has ever said that Boogie was out of shape. No, no one has ever right. said that he had the Bynum issues right. of desire. It was right. just much more. Right. I still think and the Kings. What enrages me about the Kings is that midseason coach firing of Mike Malone because he like he reached Boogie. Mm-hmm. Boogie mm-hmm. liked him. Mm-hmm. He was getting the team together. Darren Collison was playing well. Right, and they right. they fired him because the owner, Vivek, decided he wanted to have, like, play some cool new way, like four on five. I mean, I just I just wanted to, like, slap him with a sock filled with horse manure. Um. All right. We're running low on time. I wanted okay. to get those first two out of the way. Now let me ask you this. Who is the player in this draft who you think is going to be the biggest star and who? is maybe number two we should look out for. Coach, uh, who do you like the most in this draft? You've got somebody in mind. i got to think about that one. i got to marinate on that one. You know who I'm thinking about. I'll yeah. go first if you want, Mark. Yeah, you go? Go, you go first. All right, two things I want to look out for tonight that actually have me really, really, really excited in, in, my, in my loins. <laughs> um, the, the, the first is I think Justice Winslow is going to be the best player in this draft. I in think we're gonna. I think in time. Yeah. I think like in seven years, he'll be the guy who's in the all-star game, averaging 25 game, a more athletic James Harden with more dog than James Harden. Like the stuff that coach hates about James Harden, <laughs> Justice <laughs> Winslow has right, right,
3: everything right.
2: that Harden doesn't
3: have. Except scoring. He never scored like Harden. Never uh, score like Harden.
2: Well, let's see. He gets to the he can get to the line like Harden. What,
3: uh, watch this. What gives you confidence to say that? What is he showing you that gives you confidence to say that? That he shot four, before a late-season
2: slump when he was being overworked because Okafor got out of shape. Mm-hmm. Um, Winslow, 43% from three. That's no joke. 43% mm-hmm. for three through the first three quarters okay. of the year. Okay. That's legit range. I know mm-hmm. it's college, but given that people were keying right. on him, I'll take it. Mm-hmm. So I love that 43% number. So, so that's my one. The other thing that I think could happen, which would just make me really excited, because y'all know I got Wizards in my bloodstream, mm-hmm. and – I think it's highly possible that Sam Decker will fall to the wizard. Sam Decker reminds 19? me. Yeah. Wow. Sam Decker uh, <laughs> reminds me a little bit of, um, of Trevor Ariza. And I think like the idea of having a guy who can shoot long and be an offensive weapon, it's kind of like he gives you what Otto Porter, frankly, doesn't mm-hmm. give you, which mm-hmm. is like legit offensive spark, mm-hmm. which I think the team could sorely need. He's yeah. not a scrapper like Porter, but he is
3: a bomber. Hmm. And he's a really good athlete, too. Wow. Um, um, two things, real quick. Watch out for Stanley Johnson. He's got good upside, beautiful body, good athlete, young, upside. Carly Stein, another guy I'm down on, he's going to flop because I think they're drafting mm-hmm. him we'll to— We'll an extra minute. We'll figure it out. They're drafting him to stop guys like— um, What's my man in New Orleans? Help me out. Davis. Yeah, to stop Anthony Davises of the world, to stop— um, the Durants of the world, but he got destroyed by Sam Decker, your pick, in the the tournament. So what makes you think he's going to move up to the next level and mess with those guys? He's not going to do it. And he scored two points in his last game, so I don't think him. Sleeper, Jarrell Martin out of LSU, 6'7", pro body. The cat can play. Hmm. He's going to go in the late 20s. That's my guy. Watch out. Jarrell Martin out of of, of LSU, Uh, sophomore, I believe. Uh, uh, he might be a one-and-done. My Lord, they don't even have him. Okay, well, that's, that's because a, I'm, the, I'm the college basketball in the first round. Two, okay. So,
2: uh, watch out for him. That's pretty deep, man. Yep. All right, yep. Mark, what about you, my man? I, I defer to your basketball knowledge. College basketball is not my jam. I, li- I like what I see out of the. Uh, stick with me, young fella. Uh, but I'll, I'll stick with you. Everything sounds good here. <laughs> mm-hmm. no, not, not N- him, neither me. of the Harrison twins are projected to go in the first no. round, which too is slow. really that interesting. Is too that is slow. And I think yeah. you're wrong about Willie Cauley-Stein because what he can do is incredibly valuable in today's NBA, which is guard one through five.
3: Absolutely not. I think I think he's overrated. Willie Cauley Stein. He's going to get exposed. He, he if he couldn't look, he couldn't do anything with Kaminsky and Decker. Scores two points. They combine for four. Kaminsky was the greatest player in college basketball last year. Yeah, but he's still and going. Decker going to go was thirteen,
2: hot out of his mind, and nowhere near. The, it, great Kaminsky's, offense will always be great
3: defense. But here's the thing: Kaminsky's going thirteenth because he, not because of his ball skills, because he lacks, because he lacks athleticism. The yeah. guys in, in in the league have I superior Kaminsky athleticism. Goes,
2: it feels like very racially cliche, but I really hope Kaminsky goes to Utah at twelve. I think he would be a great fit there because <laughs> you at Dan because he it is racially <laughs> Say it sounds, cliche. It sounds Yeah, right. the, the Caucasian. Uh, okay. Yeah, Utah. But but he actually but having <laughs> having the the Stifle Tower, um, Rudy Gobert make up for his defensive lapses. I think it's a great place for Kaminsky because okay. the D is where he's soft. Hey, we got to go to break. We'll be back after this. One two.
1: Don't move. Dave Zirin will be right back with more Edge of Sports Radio. You're listening to Edge of Sports Radio with Dave Zirin.
2: Boom, we're back here on Edge of Sports Radio. joined by the coach Kevin out. How you doing, coach? All right, all right. Amy me, Mark. How are you doing, me, Mark? So good. Our next guest is the managing director of Street Football World USA, changing the world through soccer. Wanted to have him on the show for a long time. Very glad to have him on now. His name is Mike Geddes. Mike, how you doing, sir?
4: I'm good, Dave. How's it going?
2: Uh, it's great to have you. Like first and foremost, I want our audience to have an understanding of who I'm talking to, what your organization does, where it comes from, and why it matters. Can you tell us a little bit about Street Football World?
4: We're a nonprofit organization. We essentially connect a global network of organizations which are working in disadvantaged communities using soccer to address different kinds of social challenges. So around the world, pretty much any kind of social challenge you can think of, whether it's HIV, AIDS, or homelessness, or gang culture, or landmines, someone somewhere has come up with a way of using soccer to address it, because oftentimes when you're working in low-resource communities and you're trying to engage young people, you know, soccer is the thing that they do all the time. It's what they love to do. They don't have a stable family structure or education structure, but they're all playing soccer.
2: So you take an issue like HIV, to use one example. Mm. Is the idea that you bring young people together for the purpose of playing soccer and then try to educate them on HIV, or is it more like soccer is used in a way that actually, like the art of soccer is used as a teaching tool to teach them yeah. about HIV? How, how does that work? <laughs>
4: It's absolutely both, Dave. I mean, it's all about going to where the young people are. So taking that issue of HIV and AIDS, in a lot of countries in sub-Saharan Africa, for example, there's quite a bit of stigma around talking about the disease. People don't want to acknowledge it. What sport does is it provides this kind of ready-made space where young people can come together. They're comfortable. You know, They have respect towards a coach. And if you can then educate that coach to use that environment to pass on educational messages, it becomes a very powerful form of non-formal education. And you also mentioned, you know, is it about using the game? Yes, it is. I mean, a lot of People who've played the game, who've played soccer, they kind of have this innate feeling that it gives you a sense of teamwork, a sense of pride, whatever it might be. But also, increasingly, people are looking at the game and thinking, what are the mechanics of this sport and what Mm -hmm. are the kind of exercises and drills that people do? How do we change that in a subtle way so that even the act of playing the game is part of becoming a better person, getting an education, becoming a better citizen?
2: Wow, that's absolutely fascinating. We're talking to Mike Geddes uh, from the organization Street Football World. USA. Talk a little bit about the relationship that the organization has with FIFA, how it's able Mm -hmm. to use that relationship, work that relationship, and how some of the recent scandals or what have you in FIFA, how does that affect your organization's ability to facilitate
4: your work? We began in 2002 with six network members, and we basically went out there and we said to these organizations that were doing this fantastic work, you know, we believe in you guys and we believe that football has the power to change the world. But at that time, you know, no one's really taking care of the the social dimension of the sport. There were plenty of people developing athletes or running the World Cup, but no one was really looking in a systemic way at the way in which football can improve the world. So we created the network as a way of sharing best practice and basically creating this commonality, this global movement movement behind this idea of the sport as a, as a social good. And that started with six network members. And over the years, we've grown to where we are now, over 100 network members in 60 countries. And along that journey, this is going back to now 2006, the World Cup in Germany, FIFA had just created a corporate social responsibility department. And they were looking ahead to the World Cup in 2010. They knew that people were going to be asking, OK, you're taking the World Cup to Africa. What are you doing for society? And they created this CSI department. They said to us, you know, we want to know how do." we support HIV/ AIDS education through football that's not what FIFA does FIFA supports football associations um, with us they said, look we have a CSR budget we want to invest in this field we don't know how to do it and for us you know the decision was well you know we feel this is a huge opportunity there were challenges with FIFA I mean within our network people were saying you know this is a an organization which which we probably shouldn't work with but we felt that the opportunity was to channel some of the money from the top level of the game to where we knew it was going to do good. And that for us has been a tremendous success um, with the changes that have happened, with everything that's happened over the last couple of months. For us, it's, it's only positive. I mean, I think that, um, you know, the work that we've done through FIFA's CSR department is, is separate to what's been discussed about how the money goes to football associations. And we're, you know, we're very, very proud of what we achieved. And we just hope that whatever happens at the top of FIFA, you know, whoever's coming in, wherever the organization goes, they continue to support and actually, do more to look at their CSR investment and say, actually, this is this is great. This is a responsibility that we have, and maybe we can even develop from what we've done, um, you know, and do more in the future.
2: It's interesting because I so much of this may be political posturing, but every time a U.S. official has talked about why the FIFA investigation indictments matter, they always talk about how bribery and corruption prevents money from where it's supposed to go, particularly in the global south. I think if they are setting that up as the sort of moral justification for this expense and this criminal prosecution, that should help you when it's all said and done, because whoever comes in, they're going to have to show that an absence of corruption means more money for organizations like yours. Do you agree with that general
4: analysis? Yeah, I would think so, Dave. I mean, you know, for us, we like I said, we're tremendously proud of being a part of what FIFA has done through their CSR work. We were always surprised that they didn't talk more about it. And I think, you know, what we felt is that, you know, they, they get such a bad press and, you know, things that have happened recently show, show why that is, that they didn't want to kind of talk about anything positive because they, you know, were worried that people would criticize them for not doing enough. But we think it's actually been phenomenal what they've done and the progress they've made. They've actually really led the way in terms of how an international sports administration body runs corporate social responsibility. And as you said, Anything that we can do to kind of showcase the successes of that, whatever happens in the future, however kind of reform goes, we believe that, you know, there will be an imperative to say, actually, we, you know, we should look more closely at how these investments happen at the grassroots level. And as FIFA, we want to do good in the world. And we believe that's exactly what they've done through the work that we do with them on something called Football for Hope. And I would hope that whatever happens in the future, you know, they continue to invest in, in that fantastic work.
2: Is there ever concern on your part in trying to run an organization like this that FIFA would try to leverage the fact and leverage your work as a way to get away with things that you as an organization would disagree with? And how free are you guys as an organization to criticize FIFA if you feel like they're doing a thing such as that?
4: Yeah, it's definitely nothing that we've ever felt. I mean, as I said, we work not with the football development departments or with the football associations even. We work completely separately. You know, we work with the CSR department and we say, guys, we understand this sector. We know which of these local organizations are doing good work. We're going to make recommendations to you. And and by and large, you know, that works very, very well. And everything that FIFA has supported and we've helped implement, we've been extremely proud of. I mean, I look at the 20 Centers for 2010 campaign um, that happened around South Africa. You know, you can go to rwanda you can go to kenya go to nigeria go to Lesotho. there are centers of education public health and soccer running today running programs changing lives that that weren't there before we think it's a it's a huge achievement and certainly nothing in our kind of dealings has made us think that you know there's there's any reason for us not to do it. I mean, there's plenty of people saying, well, we disagree philosophically with what's happening um, at different levels of FIFA. And I think we think that's absolutely right. But in our opinion, you know, the best way for us to make a contribution, if it means we can't kind of speak out, then I don't think that's, Too much of a problem. There's plenty of people who have voices louder than ours, but what we think we should do is work within FIFA to try and create impact because when they look at this impact and they see, actually, this is what we can do, we can create an impact, we can do really good work, then that's going to be something that they look to invest even more in in the future.
2: Mike, let's talk about something very relevant to this moment, and that's uh, the Women's World Cup and women's Mm -hmm. soccer. One of the things that it always seems to highlight when women's world Women's World Cup comes around is, of course, amazing soccer, terrific competition, and also the global uh, inequities and development disparities when it comes to women's soccer compared to the men's game. Does your organization, what, what does your organization do around gender in soccer in terms of bringing young girls into the sport and also perhaps using soccer as a way to break down sexism um, around the world?
4: Yeah, I mean if you look at our network, and as I said, it's it's over a hundred independent non profits, I think it's something like ninety seven percent of them work with both boys and girls, and a lot of the times it's because they have identified women, young women and girls as a key demographic where they want to make an impact and they find that soccer, football can be a really powerful way to reach them because wherever you are in the world, you know, football has this um, very strong place in society. It's, it's, it's really kind of accepted by everybody. It's an integral part of life. And that can be extremely powerful when you're trying to address um, gender stereotyping, gender norms that exclude women. If you put women in that environment, they've suddenly got this position of power that they don't have. I'll, to give some examples, there's a fantastic project called Moving the Goalposts in rural eastern Kenya where, you know, women suffer terribly. Um, There's high incidence of female genital mutilation, high incidence of sexual and physical abuse, and they use soccer as basically presenting people with a different understanding of women's role in society. So it's not just wife, mother, sister, daughter, it's actually teammate. Uh, And, you know, what they've been able to do then through that soccer team is bring those girls together and give them education. They've been able to start their own small businesses. You know, it's the the protection that the sort of soccer team infrastructure gives allows them to live in that way, and that's, you know, one example There are countless others from around the world. Um, and we definitely support that. You know, we really put an effort on trying to support organizations which are using soccer as a way of breaking down gender stereotypes. We just attended a conference in Canada alongside the Women's World Cup talking about, you know, how soccer can be used in this way. And we definitely believe that it's, it's incredibly powerful. I mean, it, it, in, in a lot of ways, in the professional game, in the top level, women are, are excluded. But in the work that we do, you know, women are often kind of the focus because if you can educate women, if you can empower women and sport is, has long been recorded as a way to do that then you could have a tremendous impact on society as a whole
2: Mm. how does the work of your organization fit in with the united states is there a u.s perspective a u.s plan a u.s organizing model that you guys are undergoing because i obviously i'm sure the u.s presents its own challenges very different than that of sub-saharan africa but i'm sure there's work to be done here nonetheless
4: no, absolutely. And, you know, when I left Africa in 2012, the USA was the only place I wanted to be because, for me, for our sector, it's, it's the most exciting place around. I mean, not just the growth of soccer as a sport, but, you know, the growth of an increase in understanding of sport as a tool for social development. What we found was that the USA was kind of a little bit behind places like sub-Saharan Africa in understanding sport as anything other than, you know, competition, athletic development and scholarships. Mm -hmm. Um, But gradually, that's kind of changing. And we're seeing many organizations, we probably have about 15 across North America and the Caribbean. And every day, we're finding out about new organizations who are using soccer to work in communities and address different social issues. And oftentimes, it's, it's people who are thinking, hey, I never thought about soccer before. But for this group of kids that I'm trying to reach, it's very cheap, you don't need much equipment, you can play anywhere. And it's a low barrier to Participation. You know, you don't need equipment. You don't need to be uh, six foot, ten inches tall. You can just come and play. Um, and increasingly around the U.S., we're seeing organizations um, doing this. The big challenge presented by the USA is that you guys well know, you know, it's a, it's a different kind of game here. It's not the game in the streets. It's the sort of middle-class suburban game. And, you know, there are organizations which are, struggling for resources trying to bring soccer into these you know urban or underserved areas but again i go back to this being a huge opportunity because you have this game of soccer you know trying to expand in the country and it has behind it you know a business imperative to reach these communities and we think that's a huge opportunity because if you can kind of get u.s. soccer and the brands that are supporting it behind this idea that by reaching these underserved communities Mm -hmm. it's good for the growth of the game then that helps us because it provides support to the organizations in our network in this country who are doing amazing amazing work addressing issues like drugs, racism, homelessness all using the game of soccer.
2: Mm. Last question for you, Mike, I mean the the work really does st- sound important. I mean how can my listeners learn more about your organization and how can they help if they are predisposed to do so?
4: No, definitely. You can go to our website. It's streetfootballworld.org. You can follow us on Twitter. It's S F W underscore tweets. We're also on Facebook. Uh, we're always trying to find ways for people to get involved on a global level or, or on a regional level. We just launched this, uh, what we think is a pretty cool initiative called Of Dust and Football. This is about, we've, what we've done is we've created replica jerseys that represent these organizations. So, you know, a refugee girls team in Iraq, which is playing soccer. We've created a jersey for them that you wow. can buy, and the feeds from that, Go to supporting that organization, and what what we're interested in doing is just kind of disrupting the whole soccer business world, so that every sort of piece of it can contribute to supporting this idea of soccer as a tool for social change. So, of Dustin Football, um, it's on Twitter. Um, You can find it on our website. Uh, We're going to relaunch the website next month, actually, with a bunch, uh, you know, making a lot easier to find out what's going on in your region. Um, But search that website, and you can find out um, everything you need to know about our work.
2: Well, Mike Geddes, thanks so much for joining us on Edge of Sports. Pleasure. Thanks very much for having me, Dave. Wow, that was Mike Geddes. We'll be back right after this.
1: Dave Zirin will continue with Edge of Sports Radio after the break. Edge of Sports Radio returns. Here's Dave Zirin. Boom,
2: we're back here on Edge of Sports Radio. Pack it up, pack it in. Let me begin. I came to win. Battle me, that's a sin. Hello. Uh, let's start with you, Coach. What are you looking at, Coach? You look oh, distracted, man.
3: man. No, I'm, I'm, I'm there. I, 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 I do want to clear thing up. When I said defense overrated, drafting for defense with a top five pick—that's just I don't understand it. That. That's yeah, what Michael uh, kidd Just Bill like drafting Christ. European in the top five, it doesn't work out. They, they it think. doesn't Jesus. work out. Go Dan, go Dan,
2: go Dan. Joseph like Kennedy <laughs> is is our uh, producer <laughs> here. Unbelievable. <laughs> hey, we got Noah in the house. Noah. Noah do you know what my today man. is.
4: Yeah, draft day. (laughs) Are you into the
2: NBA draft? No, I'm not. Today is June 25th. It is the anniversary, I believe the 6th, of the passing of one Michael Jackson. So I thought we could end by sharing Michael Jackson memories. Okay. Noah, when I say Michael Jackson, what comes to mind? Just his death, really. I don't know much about him. (laughs) You have a favorite song? Not really. I know a couple of them. What are but... some Michael Jackson songs you know? Can you name five Michael Jackson songs? You're just Probably it. not. Come on. Go for it. Five Michael Jackson songs. Come on. Thriller? Thriller.
3: Um... You can stop, dude. That's the best of all time. Come
2: on, man. <laughs> I don't. Is that Shimon? Is that the name of the song? Shimon. <laughs> I don't know what? that's the name of the you song. You mean one where he goes, Shamo? Yeah. No. It's <laughs> not a song. It's <laughs> just what he would say. Songs. All of the know. songs. All right. All right. So so what about like Beat It? No? Oh, yeah. A Billy Jean, Man mm-hmm. in the Mirror. It's like, just not your thing. No. It's right. not your thing. What about you, Coach? Michael Jackson fam?
3: Michael Jackson? Uh, who's that? You mean like point guard for <laughs> yeah, the Hoyas? Yeah, point guard for the Hoyas. No, no, no. <laughs> uh, man,
2: uh, let me tell you something. Michael Jackson is the most transcendent performer of the last hundred years in popular culture. Rivaled only by probably Elvis Presley. If you're talking about true impact on the culture. Who who probably Melissa children? Maybe, maybe not, but probably so. Well, you're gonna you're going you're gonna try him in Absentia on the anniversary of his death. Yeah, man. I've if this ever, was Twitter, ev- I'd block you. That's fine. I wish that's I could fine. block ev- you. Like I everybody wish everybody forgot about it. I wish my life was, was Twitter. It's not fine. If <laughs> my life was Twitter, I would press a button and block you <laughs> and say, "Promise, Noah. You got homework. I want you to look up Motown 25. It's 1983. Michael Jackson doing Billie Jean on stage. Will you do that? For Moonwalk, me? baby." <laughs> Excellent. For everybody in the house, we are out of here. Peace!
1: Edge of Sports Radio, where sports and politics collide. Tune in next week and go to edgeofsports.com.
0: You know how to book flights and hotels.